Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 171. We continue reading through the Gospel of John, chapter 18, and today we're in verse 15. Now, if you have, I think it's the NIV, there are a couple of versions that right above this paragraph says Peter's first denial. And it's instructive to see that John breaks up the incidences of Peter's denial with the historical record of what's going on in the midst of that denial. A lot of times when we tell the story of Peter's three denials, we tell them consecutively without any breaks. And that makes it easy to to disregard that Peter was unaware most of the time during his denials. Jesus had said he would deny him three times. If the, if the denials came consecutively, right together, Peter would certainly be aware of what he was doing. But because it's broken up by the circumstances of that night, Peter's not counting. I'm not sure that Peter is even aware that he's denying Christ. I think that Peter believes he's protecting himself. And it isn't until the rooster crows that Peter realizes what he's done. So this this little section is often called Peter's first denial, but it tells us all kinds of things besides Peter's denial. It, It really isn't even about the first denial, but that's what happens in this section. So we take up the text in John 16, verse 15. Peter and another disciple, who remains unnamed. Peter and another disciple followed along behind them, those who had arrested Jesus, as they took Jesus into the courtyard of Annas' palace. Since the other disciple was well known to the high priest, he entered. But Peter was left standing outside by the gate. Then the other disciple came back out to the servant girl who was guarding the gate. The word there is probably better watching the gate and talked to her about letting Peter come inside. As Peter passed inside, the servant girl guarding the gate took a look at him and said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? He denied it saying, no, I'm not. Now because it was cold, the soldiers and guards had made a charcoal fire and were standing around it to keep warm. So instead of going in, Peter huddled there with them around the fire. If you're a Christian person who's heard the story of Christ's passion many times in your life, you've read over this part of the story and not paid attention to quite a few of the things that are going on here. We get set up a little bit because John, the gospel writer, the evangelist, never refers to himself 
by name. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, or he's another disciple who runs along with Peter into the tomb. But here, he doesn't name the other disciple for a very different reason. And yet, he tells you who it is, if you pay attention. And this is probably a part of the story that you've never been told. Because we were set up to always believe that the other disciple was always John. But I don't believe so. So Peter and this other disciple followed the arresting party back to the home of Annas. Annas is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. He is Caiaphas's wife's father. He is probably the one from whom Caiaphas has gathered his political clout because now they live in a palace. And Jesus is taken first to Annas' home to prepare him for talking to Caiaphas. Annas is the first line of interrogation. It indicates that Annas is smart, trusted, high up in the government by influence or by money or something. So that's where they take Jesus first, is to Annas' palace. Not to Caiaphas' home, but to Annas' palace. So they walk first into the courtyard. The courtyard had a gate to the street, and if someone were visiting the home, they would come into the courtyard. They would not be allowed inside the inner gate until they were invited. You would come into the courtyard, knock on the inner gate, and wait for someone to come and answer. They're in the inner courtyard. And then this in verse 15, the second half of verse 15. Because the other disciple was well known to the high priest, he was allowed to enter. But Peter was left standing outside by the gate. Because the other disciple was well known to the high priest, there's the clue for who this other disciple is. Is it John? No, John was from Galilee. He would be no more well-known to the high priest than Jesus was. And they didn't know Jesus well enough to arrest the right guy without somebody showing them who he was. No, it's not John. It's not any of the disciples from the northern part of Israel. The high priest didn't ever go up there. He never left Jerusalem. He didn't have any reason to know any of them. Who is the one disciple that the high priest, who we know the high priest knows? Because he has paid that disciple off. It's Judas. He's the only disciple that's from Jerusalem, or at least from the south part of Israel, from from Judea. Iscariot is a community just outside of Jerusalem. So Judas Iscariot is the disciple who is known to the high priest. 
He believes he's doing God's will. He believes he's bringing Jesus in to where he can reveal himself and declare himself the Messiah and overthrow the Romans with a word and restore the kingdom to Israel on the spot. He thinks he's the cheese. And so they get to Anna's palace and Judas just walks right in. He knows everybody who's playing in this drama. They paid him to identify Jesus for them. Judas doesn't yet know how this is going to turn out. Oh, Judas is doing God's will. Judas is accomplishing the purpose. He just doesn't understand what purpose he's accomplishing. And it's not going to be a happy one. So Judas goes in, Peter stays outside. And then the Bible says, then the other disciple came back out to the servant girl and convinced her to allow Peter to come in. Judas doesn't realize anything is wrong. Peter came along with him. Come on, Peter, come on in and see what Jesus is about to do. Judas thinks this is a a sport to be observed. He thinks this is something Peter's going to want to see. See? Peter starts to walk through the gate. And the little girl who's watching the gate says, Oh, you're one of his disciples too, aren't you? And he says, No, I'm not. No, I I don't know the man. And he chooses not to go in. So as not to be connected to Jesus. He stays out with the guards and the soldiers and huddles around a fire with them. But the word for fire here is a very particular word. You're going to see it again. It's going to be a couple of chapters, but you're going to see this word again. And I want you to remember that the soldiers and guards had built a charcoal fire and were standing around it to keep warm. So Peter huddled there with them around the fire. The fire is not the point of this story. It will be the point later, (laughs) at least an important feature. But I want you to remember that Peter first denied Christ standing beside a charcoal fire. This word is only used of fire a couple of places in the Bible. They're right here in the Gospel of John and they're significant. But the story is the story of the betrayers. Did you catch that? Who are the two disciples that are together at Anna's house? Judas and Peter. The betrayers have traveled together with Jesus to the first stop 
in his kangaroo court trial. They're the only two that have come. It's Judas and Peter. And Judas, believing this is some kind of spectator sport that Peter shouldn't miss, comes back out and says, no, no, he's with us. Let him come in as well. And Peter starts to come in until the girl says, wait, aren't you also one of his disciples? Or maybe she says, oh, I see. You're one of his disciples too. Associating him with Judas. Peter knows what Judas is doing. Judas came with the guards and and the soldiers. It's clear now that Judas is the betrayer. Peter understands that. He doesn't want to be connected to Judas and he doesn't want to be connected to Jesus. He is self-isolating to keep himself out of trouble. Because that's what betrayers do. Afraid of being connected with anything that would lead anybody to think anything bad of them They dissociate from everything and everybody. Those that could convict them and those that could help them. Peter disconnects himself from Judas for fear of being labeled as a betrayer. He disconnects from Jesus for fear of being labeled as a disciple. And so he self-isolates, disconnecting himself from those who could harm him and the one who could help him. And there's you and me. There's the humanity in this story right there. That when we are threatened, we isolate. And if we are threatened with accusation and blame, we isolate ourselves from those who would blame us. And sometimes in doing so, we isolate ourselves also from those who could help us. And there are those times that when we're faced with the opportunity to stand up and witness, with the opportunity to stand up and be counted for Christ because it's not acceptable in that social setting, because it's not okay to be known as a Christian at work, because it's not okay to be labeled a Christian at school. We isolate ourselves even from our faith, even from identifying as being Christian. We've all been there. We've all done it. Sometimes we do it consciously. I teach in a public school. And when kids say, hey, don't you go to that church over there? I tend to say, well, the church I go to really isn't supposed to be a topic of discussion in this class, which is true. And it keeps me out of trouble. But sometimes a kid says, Mr. Hopkins, 
I saw you at the youth activity Sunday night. Well, I can't deny that without lying. So I say, yes, I was there. And then if kids say, well, what was that about? Or what did you think about it? I'm really free to respond to those honest questions with an honest answer. But the truth is there are times that I try to play off my Christian life experience because it's a public school. I don't want to make waves. I don't want to get called to the principal's office and reminded that I'm in school, not Sunday school, which has happened. I have to watch the things that I say because of where I am. Tragic? Yeah, in some ways it is. Necessary? Well, it's justifiable, right? In some ways. But am I comfortable with it? I'm not. Because I feel that I've let God down. And that's that's a really benign kind of example. I mean, you and I have let God down a lot worse in other in other circumstances. One quick story and then I'll close. When I was a very young associate pastor, I was leading music in a church in my hometown. And there was a teenager in our church who was a great kid, just the most upstanding, honorable kid you could imagine. And he was out with his teenage buddies, as teenagers will do, racing their car up and down a four-lane expressway. And a family in a station wagon pulled out in front of them. And they broadsided them. It killed three people in the family car almost instantly. It ejected two of the teenagers from their car, killed another one in the car. The boy from my church was one of those who was ejected. They took him to the hospital and for a while it didn't look like he was going to survive. And then he gradually pulled through and was gaining strength and we felt like our prayers had been answered. And about a week later, in the midst of looking like everything was going great, his body threw a blood clot through his brain and it, and it killed him immediately. He was gone. A couple days later, we had church. And, and in our church services on Sunday evenings, we typically had a testimony time. And during the testimony time, the pastor asked if anybody had something to say for the Lord. Something God was doing in their life that they felt needed to be shared. And one of the outstanding young men that I really looked up to took the microphone and said, this is not something that honors God. It's something I need to confess. He said, last week when that boy was hurt in that accident, when we knew he'd regain consciousness, I really felt God impressing upon me that I needed to go and ask him about his soul and ask him if he was at peace with God. And I have to confess to you, I put it off. And as he got better, I thought, well, he'll be home soon and I'll talk to him about it then. 
and then he died. And, and, and I don't know how to tell you this, but I let God down. I didn't speak to him about his soul, and I will never know if he was okay with God or not, if he was saved, if, he, if he'd repented, if he'd asked Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. He said, I, I'll never know. And that breaks my heart. That will never happen in my life again. He was sobbing and in tears. The church was very quiet. You could hear people crying around the congregation. Then another young man, his cousin, stood up and motioned for the microphone and they brought the microphone to him. And he said, cousin, I, I want you to know that the night before that boy died, I got off work, I came home, I took a shower, I sat down in my chair to watch some TV. And I felt God say, I need you to get up right now and go see that boy and ask him about his faith. He said, I told my wife, I'm just gonna grab a quick bite. I'm going to the big city to see the boy in the hospital. She rode along. He said, we got there. He was sitting up in bed talking and smiling. I came in, he greeted me by name. I said, I just came really to pray with you, but to ask you, do you have peace with God? Has he forgiven your sin? Is, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? He said, that boy smiled broadly at me and said, oh, yes. Yes, I asked him into my heart last year in a youth group meeting, and I've been walking with the Lord. You know, I'm a teenage boy, and this whole car race was an awful decision. But yes, in my heart, I have peace with God today. He said, I drove back home thinking, Lord, you knew he was okay. You knew he knew you. Why was it so important that I go and ask him? And he took a deep breath and was choking back tears. And he said, cousin, now I know. It was because God knew that you needed to know. Wow. That was 40 years ago and I've never forgotten it. Sometimes we isolate ourselves when God needs us to work, when God needs us to show up. And yet even when we ignore him, man, it feels like such a failure, doesn't it? When I'm convinced that God's asked me to do something and, and I didn't do it, even then, God looks after me. Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who serve him, who are called to accomplish his purposes. Peter, foot in the mouth, cutting off ears, Peter isolates himself 
from the betrayer, the other betrayer, isolates himself from Jesus, leaves Jesus without a friend in that first kangaroo court and huddles there by the charcoal fire with the guards and the soldiers who arrested Jesus, who are just there in case they get called to transport him to another place, and they will. Peter huddles there with the faithless, isolated and alone. My friend, if you have isolated yourself for whatever reason, to not be associated with the, with the unrighteous, okay. But in the process, have you isolated yourself from the one who can forgive you and who loves you? If you feel isolated today, that's probably what's happened. Jesus still cares about you. Jesus is still looking out for you. You're going to see this in a really crazy way in Peter's life in a couple of chapters beside another charcoal fire. But in this moment, he feels isolated. I want you to know if you feel isolated, you are not alone. You are loved. You have family. You have friends. You have people who will lead you back to Jesus. And you have Christ who will take you back in a heartbeat. Get up from beside the fire and make your way back to Jesus. Jesus.